0: Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello, my name's Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, You can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.
0: On this episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, a gruesome murder in a Florida orange grove in 1882.
2: Several men in a boat find a a bloated corpse floating in the lake, or an adjoining lake near a very small island in the middle of this lake. The body had floated to the surface, and... They row over to it and turn it over, and it has no head, missing part of an arm, missing an entire leg, and a whole bunch of other what look like stab wounds and cuts to the body.
0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Great to have you here. Again, I wanted to remind everyone that we have a Most Notorious community over at patreon.com slash mostnotorious. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. If you've ever thought at any point while listening to the show that you would like to help in some way, well, good news, you can do it. You can support the show by going to patreon.com slash and as a reminder every week i do offer a brand new aghast at the past episode on mondays it is a this day in true crime history episode and and i've gotten great feedback about it uh, if nothing else you can come on over and not only support the show but you can get these patreon exclusive episodes of aghast at the past okay on to this week's interview. I am so pleased to have as my guest today, Andrew Fink. He is an attorney, executive counsel to a Fortune 100 company by day, and a writer and historian by night. He's here to talk about his book with one of the best titles I've ever had the pleasure to announce on this show, Murder on the Florida Frontier, the true story behind Sanford's headless miser legend. That's awesome. Thank you for joining me.
2: You're welcome, and thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah. So let me start by asking you, where did you first hear about this story?
2: Yeah, I first heard about this through some of the work I had done at the Sanford Historical Society. And Sanford is a small town in central Florida, and I had uh, joined the Historical Society there, and actually at my very first meeting uh, with the organization, uh, I volunteered to be the vice president. They had a uh, an opening, and I'm not really sure what compelled me to raise my hand and volunteer, uh, but I became uh, involved with the Sanford Historical Society, and uh, through some of the work I did at the Sanford Museum, which is affiliated with the Society, Uh, did a lot of, you know, helping organize and going through materials and and things of that nature, came across this story uh, of the tragic murder of a man named Samuel McMillan, and the probably equally tragic story of the person accused of killing him uh, named Archie Newton. And the story of these two men uh, was sitting on the shelf at the Sanford Museum in a form of a very really small binder. And uh, the curator there, Alicia Clark, uh, one day I was mentioning that I had been doing some research on some other projects and other history things that I was looking at. She pulled that small binder down off the shelf and said, here's a story that I think you'd be interested in. And I think it's a story that A is worth telling and B was just waiting for someone to discover and to be able to have these two men kind of brought to light again. And I opened the binder and it just had uh, a few newspaper articles uh, and part of a Florida Supreme Court case in this binder. And, you know, being a lawyer, that certainly appealed to me. And I kind of read through that. And uh, as I read kind of just that brief material that they had there, Uh, It was a fascinating story with colorful characters that if you put them in a fiction novel, people would think that you completely made it up and it wasn't real. Uh, So that's kind of how I found that story. And, um, you know, from there, just took all the other projects I was doing, set those aside and focused on this story.
0: Oh, that's great. So I'd like to ask you first about Sanford, Florida. What was the town like in the early 1880s?
2: Sure, and I should mention that this story takes place uh, in, in and around 1882 and 1883. And for those listeners not familiar with Florida history, which to a lot of people seems very brief indeed, um, especially before the advent of air conditioning, uh, but Florida at this time in the 1880s uh, specifically, Sanford, Florida, in, in the central part of the state, was really kind of the frontier of uh, Florida at the time. And uh, by that, I mean uh, steamboat, riverboat traffic, and railroads were just starting to reach the interior of Florida from Jacksonville. So if you look on a map of Florida, everybody can kind of picture what Florida looks like. Jacksonville's in the top right corner, roughly. And Sanford sits almost, geographically, almost in the middle of the state. Most listeners will be familiar with Orlando. Sanford is about 20 miles or so north of Orlando. So just to kind of to set everybody on the geography. In the 1880s, uh, Sanford was a very successful, very busy uh, steamboat uh, river wharf. It sits on a big lake called Lake Monroe, which itself is kind of really a wide spot in the St. Johns River which is one of the few rivers in the world that runs north so it originates down in the Florida Everglades and winds its way all the way up bisecting the state and empties into the Atlantic in Jacksonville so Sanford sits on this very important waterway and in the 1880s was really the hub of people coming into Florida settlers from the north people disembarking in Sanford and moving down into the environs around that town. And if you can kind of picture a bustling town of perhaps a few thousand people, that would have resembled very much a town in the Old West, which a lot of people can kind of instantly picture the images of an Old West town. That's exactly what Sanford looked like at this time in the 1880s. Uh, it would have had uh, several uh, long wharfs into the lake for taking on supplies and loading supplies. It would have had uh, numerous, uh, at this time, a railway station was being built and railroads were starting to connect in through Sanford into the rest of the interior of the state. And above all else, uh, and this is why Sanford became so important, was citrus. And you would have seen all manner of citrus everywhere you looked in Sanford, mainly oranges, but lemons, limes, pineapples, and then other fruits like bananas, any kind of fresh fruit you can think of uh, was grown in central Florida at this time. Uh, And it was really important in terms of its location and the railroads, because you could literally pick the fruit, put it in a crate, ship it north on the railroad and it could be on the store shelves of Philadelphia or Boston or New York within a day or two. And the freshness of the fruit was really the key. This was before refrigeration became um, available and folks were making fortunes coming to Central Florida, buying land, planting an orange grove and uh, harvesting the fruit and selling it uh, to um, wholesalers that shipped it north so i always when i give a talk about this story and and tell people kind of the context i ask them the next time they go to the grocery store and they're in the produce section to look at an orange which seems kind of a lowly fruit bright colored but we take it for granted in the 1880s when this story occurred and when these two men intersected it would have been probably the most important thing to everybody uh, in this bustling frontier town at the time
0: So let's begin with Archie Newton, one of the central characters in your story. How did he come to find himself in Sanford, Florida?
2: So um, a fascinating story, this young man um, was, uh, he was um, not a U.S. citizen. He was from England. He was a British citizen. So right away, I asked people when they're reading about Archie Newton and the events that happened to think about him kind of in a deep South frontier town in Florida with a very thick British accent uh, certainly would have been uh, instantly viewed as an outsider and perhaps would have been viewed with uh, some amount of suspicion that he would have had to overcome uh, just because of where he was from and his accent. But that would really be only part of his story because how he got to the Florida frontier is a long twisted road. He was uh, born in London in about 1861, uh, and he came to Sanford, Florida in 1880. So he was 20 years old, roughly, when he came here. So again, as we speak about him and his eventual accusation of murder, uh, a very, very young man uh, in a rough and tumble, very busy frontier town. Uh, He was uh, born to parents that uh, were up-and-comers. His mother actually was related to a very, very wealthy Scottish family and um, uh, came from kind of the upper echelon of society, uh, British society at the time. And his father was studying to be a lawyer. And his parents had actually met and married um, on another frontier, the British frontier of India uh, several years before this and lived and worked in India in the British colony there. And then he, the father, had to come back to London to complete his uh, legal studies. And that's when Archie was born uh, in London um, in the St. Pancras district. And they lived for a few years in London. And records show us that his father actually petitioned to be let out of his studies early so that they could return to India. And again, listeners may not really remember how important India was to the British Empire at this time. And uh, not unusual for folks to be born and perhaps live most of their lives as British citizens abroad in India. So his parents were kind of in that in that vein. The father actually wanted to be um, accelerated and be called a lawyer, uh, but didn't have enough uh, of the study done and was denied the family stayed in London another year or so. And then eventually he was let out of his uh, obligation to finish his studies. And he and his wife and young Archie, who uh, would still be a baby moved back to India at that time. And I tell you all that history because uh, this story, To me, it's also fascinating because it connects kind of a frontier, central Florida, Old West kind of feel town in the United States to the vastness and far expanse of the British Empire. Unfortunately for Archie, uh, on the Indian frontier, his father died uh, when Archie was about um, 11 or 12 years old. And then his mother died a few years after that, when Archie was probably 17 or 18 years old, roughly. Record's a little hard to discern on that, but a uh, tragic story for a very young teenager uh, living in the far-flung reaches of the British Empire. Uh, by that time, he had several brothers and sisters. He would have been the eldest. And he eventually moved back uh, to London, it looks like in early 1880. So again, framing up the... Uh, story of these two men. Um, He made it back to London and seemed to settle in, tried to settle in, got a job with his uh, very wealthy uncle, which would have been his mother's brother. And unfortunately, as some teenage uh, young men do, got into some trouble, had a few run-ins with the law, Was accused of breaking a light post and uh, probably being drunk in public. Never really did any jail time, couldn't find any records that he got in serious trouble. But throughout 1880, there was a pattern that he perhaps was uh, not on you know, the straight and narrow. And uh, in late 1880, uh, he was accused by a young lady of inappropriate relations with her. And she reported that she was pregnant with Archie Newton's child. And this would have been quite a serious accusation against a young man from a uh, family with uh, social standing and he um, denied it, certainly, and, but his uh, family was able to uh, avoid arrest and to avoid further problems and probably embarrassment, shipped him off to the United States and specifically uh, to Sanford, Florida. Um, And that's a real long answer about how he got to Florida, but it really was an escape from a very bad accusation in London, what would probably have been very dire criminal problems uh, there.
0: Right, right. He was involved with the Bowren sisters, Kate and Polly, if I remember right. Polly was the woman who accused him of getting her pregnant, and her sister Kate appeared to take his side. And that became even more clear when she traveled all the way from England to Florida to be with him. Not long after, he was set up with a nice little house.
2: Yes, that that's true. And, and you know, again, I, I started at the outset by saying this story had fascinating, colorful characters. It also has a lot of twists and turns that, um, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. So he, uh, Archie, was uh, accused by Polly Bowerin of the inappropriate relationship, oddly, he was defended in that accusation by Polly's sister named Kate. And not only did Kate defend Archie and his reputation, uh, Kate apparently suggested that Polly was basically a gold digger and may, may have had this pattern of finding wealthy young men from upper level families and accusing, making these accusations in order to get money. And in this story, it's not clear whether the family paid her off uh, to be quiet. There's no other criminal or legal references to this case uh, in uh, London after he left in near the end of 1880, actually left very quickly. So it appears that either some pressure was applied to Polly Bowron to drop her accusation or perhaps some money changed hands. But as you note, Kate, Polly's sister, uh, not only defended Archie, she married the guy and she got on a boat to New York in 1881 and they were married and he brought her to uh, Sanford, Florida, uh, where he had a nice fine new house built and they started life as a married, cu- married English couple uh, in you know, post-reconstruction Florida. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money.
3: They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history.
1: and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities.
3: The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. There must have been some
0: resentment from some in Sanford, especially those who had bootstrapped their way to some land through hard work. And here Archie Newton comes in as this privileged and connected young Englishman, and he's basically given an allowance and money to build a house. I can only imagine that some of Sanford's residents didn't think too highly of this young upstart, uh, uh, wouldn't you say?
2: Absolutely. You're 100% correct. And he would have arrived here with a letter uh, of introduction from really his actually great uncle who was really the patriarch of the kind of his mother's whole side of the family that person's name was sir william mckinnon and at the time in 1880s he was probably one of the wealthiest shipping magnates in the whole british empire he had actually either largely owned or directed most of british ship trading in India uh, and was actually actively working at the time to become involved in uh, the opening up of the Western part of Africa uh, to shipping and vast trade and resources. Again, at this time that was just starting. So uh, William McKinnon was kind of Archie Newton's patron and sponsor, if you will. It was McKinnon who probably got Archie out of his legal trouble early in 1880 when he had a couple of run-ins with the law. And then it was McKinnon uh, and his company and his representatives who either paid off Polly Bowron to, to keep her quiet or somehow made that work and got Archie out of town again within a few days of the accusation. So uh, it's this privilege that Archie comes from when he steps off the river steamer in Sanford into this bustling, busy frontier town where everybody is hardworking. They have boots on their, their hands are not soft. Their collars are not starched. So a really different environment, um, kind of a, a, a collision of two worlds. And the other interesting point here is the interplay between, you know, kind of the wood paneled, expensive offices of London and the city and Sanford, Florida. Well, there's actually a lot more connections there behind the scenes and that those connections really are born from this. Henry Sanford is the founder of Sanford, Florida. Henry Sanford is a Connecticut Yankee, basically very from a very wealthy family. They owned a tack factory in, in Connecticut and quite successful over two or three generations and Henry was supposed to go into the family business, did not want to, instead wanted to travel the world, became kind of a diplomat sort, served in some various offices around the world, spent little time in the U.S., but also got an inheritance, and he fancied himself as an investor businessman type. Unfortunately for Henry, he was a horrible businessman, and almost everything he invested in either failed lost money or barely broke even before he had to sell it move on. Um, the town of Sanford, Florida, was a 23, mile, 23 square mile tract of land that he bought in the 1870s as an investment. And his goal was to buy this land and then take advantage of the citrus growing and what he actually, in a moment of clarity foresaw is probably a transportation hub. He wanted to lay out a town invest in that and then um, parcel up the land and what he had you know basically land speculation and sell a lot of land and make a lot of money off of this town Uh, he named it after himself which is not shocking to anybody Uh, he called himself a general even though he bought that commission during the civil war and worked really hard to make the town sanford a going concern it struggled at first and then eventually kind of took hold But doubly unfortunate for this story, Henry Sanford, by the late 1870s, was almost broke and needed money. So he uh, had crossed paths with William McKinnon, who was Archie Newton's great uncle, remember, and asked McKinnon if he'd be interested in um, loaning him money via buying Sanford, Florida, basically. And McKinnon, who thought little of Henry Sanford and the correspondence between the two is very frosty and McKinnon's letters to other folks in his social circle at the time clearly show they had was not a friend of Henry Sanford. However, McKinnon saw a business opportunity and by agreeing to actually buy the entire tract of land, which was Sanford, Florida in 1880, he was looking to buy influence with the King of Belgium and if you just stick with me a second, the story goes like this. Henry Sanford at the time was a diplomat based in Brussels, Belgium, representing the U.S., and was actually a very good personal friend of the king of Belgium. McKinnon knew that. McKinnon knew that if he got Sanford on his side, he might be able to buy influence in the uh, Belgian king's court. To get part of the West Africa trade that he was so interested in and the Belgians, if you remember the Belgian on the Congo story, that's much maligned today. That was developing at this time. So in, in a very strange roundabout way, the, the Florida frontier and this kind of small hard scrabble town, uh, in Sanford, Florida was a pawn in a very big global high stakes game. Uh, be, with between some very, very wealthy and influential people. And McKinnon eventually did agree through his company to buy Sanford, Florida. It was couched as a loan to Henry Sanford, but he took possession of the all the land, basically. So a lot of Floridians don't even realize that in 1880, for a period of about 20 years, actually, this part of Florida was owned by a British company. The company that actually was formed to buy this land and manage it was called the Florida Land and Colonization Company, which probably would have made Paul Revere spin in his grave had he heard that name again. Um, So all that said, this is a great place to dump a troublemaking, very young, great nephew to get him out of London and keep him out of jail, send him to the Florida frontier, let him restart his life there.
0: Right. Yeah. (laughs) So Kate joins him. They are living in a house on a decent amount of acreage. Not far away is another piece of land owned by a man named Sam McMillan, a far different person than Archie Newton. Uh, Would you tell us about Sam McMillan and the life he'd carved out for himself in Sanford?
2: Yeah. the, the, The contrast between these two men couldn't be any more stark. Um, Sam McMillan was born in uh, Ohio uh, in about 1835, uh, which makes him in his mid to later 40s at the time of our story in the 1880s. Spent his childhood in a town called Salem, Ohio. And people have mentioned to me the, a, a supposed connection to the kind of witchcraft stories of Salem, Massachusetts, Uh, given what happened to Sam and um, the Headless Miser ghost stories, connecting Salem, Ohio, with Salem math. They have nothing to do with each other. It's just happenstance. But he lived in Ohio as a hard worker from probably a farming family. Late teenager, Sam actually worked in a newspaper office, saved a little bit of money, leased a nearby tract of land to either plant on or farm, but found that it had coal on it. And this would have been in the 1850s with the advent of railroads uh, really just starting to come into their own. Um, his land became very valuable and he acquired more property and uh, developed coal mines. And at a very early age, this hardworking guy became actually not wealthy, but pretty well off for his social class and did very well for himself. And then in about 1874, what a lot of newspaper accounts say were for health reasons, which is a very generic description of why a lot of people move south. He uh, relocated to uh, Sanford, Florida. And again, as I said before this time frame of the 1880s, and it would have started a little bit before that in the 18 mid 1870s uh, was a kind of a land boom in Florida to take advantage of the citrus growing and shipping uh, back north for a high profit. Uh, But he came down. There were several other men that had relocated here from either his hometown or the surrounding area that had come down and started their own orange groves and done quite well. So he moved south to the Sunshine State, uh, purchased about 15 acres of land uh, in an area called Twin Lakes. And uh, the, the land that he purchased, whether it was through sharp-eyed surveying and understanding of the land needed to grow or just luck was very, very good land to grow oranges on, had good drainage and good, uh, actually a little elevation, which for your listeners familiar with Florida is very rare in Florida to have any kind of elevation. So, uh, he bought his land started an orange Grove and newspaper accounts from the time indicate that he became very profitable. And, uh, again, made great choices, worked very hard. He was a hard worker. Sam McMillan was, he actually worked beside his uh, laborers uh, in the fields and in the groves, you know, with the hoe, with the ladder, picking the fruit, with the crates boxing it up and putting it on wagons. He was out there with his shirt sleeves rolled up, pants, dirty boots on with his workers. So if you kind of put these two men, Archie Newton and Sam McMillan, if you stood them up together, uh, they couldn't be more different. So why is he
0: considered a miser?
2: Yeah, so so the the colorful part of this of these characters again, this is all real. I'm not making any of this up. He was a little odd. Sam McMillan was, and his neighbors described him as really eccentric. Uh, he liked privacy. He actually built his house intentionally in the middle of his 15 acre uh, parcel. Uh, in the middle of all the grove of orange trees around him so that no one could see his house. And when he left the house, he had a system of locking the door, locking the gate. He would put like a piece of straw or a piece of paper on the top of the door between the door frame and door so that he'd know that if anybody ever opened his door when he got back, he was that guy. He was described as penurious and very close about his spending and even though he was probably very well off, I don't want to say wealthy, but pretty well off for the time, had money, he hated to spend his money and he hated to waste his money. So if you picture this man who was a very hard worker, sweating out in the, in the groves every day, worked hard in Ohio and with coal mine development, moved here, made it happen here, lived a very Spartan life. His house didn't really have much furniture in it. His bed was a small cot. And I think in his bedroom it was described as a cot and like a side table and a, and a crate, you know, a a chest. That was it. And he had a kitchen table with two chairs and the basic stuff and lived a bachelor life there. So definitely a miserly sort. The other peculiar fact about him, which most likely led to his demise was the fact that because he liked to keep his money close to him, and because he didn't really trust people, even his friends, and that lack of trust carried over into banks, he kept all of his cash on his person anytime he left the house. So your listeners are probably like, yeah, there's no way. That's just a story. Who, do, who carries all their cash with them in a, in a big you know, role? Sam McMillan did. And we know that because this story... Uh, in the telling of it, in the research, a lot of the facts that I found on this story come from the transcript of Archie Newton's murder trial in 1883. I was able to locate this this transcript through a lot of searching and stops and starts at the state archives in uh, the Florida State Archives in Tallahassee, Florida, and um, it's over a thousand pages of the actual trial testimony of uh, all the witnesses and there were over 60 of them over like a six week period in 1883 at at Archie's trial. So all these facts about everyday life in Florida, everyday life of the people who lived and worked here, knew the players. It's kind of a snapshot uh, of history, which I love when we find stuff like this and can kind of bring people back to life and let their voices be heard that history would, it would normally be lost to folks. So the trial transcript gave us a lot of rich, rich detail. Um, And that's why I know exactly what furniture was in Sam McMillan's house and how he lived and what he did. He carried his money in kind of an old, some people call it a wallet, some called it an almanac, some a passbook kind of a thing uh, with an old shoestring tied around it. And he stuffed all of his cash in there uh, at this time in American history, greenbacks had started being printed and distributed. There was still some uh, Confederate or state money in circulation, although that was starting to die out. So he might have had a little mixture in there, but definitely had greenbacks. Um, some people said he had ten to $15,000 worth of bills in this big overstuffed wallet with a shoestring around it, and he sewed secret pockets on the inside of his shirts where he would slide this big wallet thing or passbook thing when he left his house. So if, if your listeners can picture this man, uh, Sam McMillan, who was by all accounts short, um, kind of a scrawny little guy, maybe weighed 130 pounds, leaving his house, probably a sunburnt hard looking guy, the big bulge in the front of his shirt or his coat or his vest, uh, everybody knew that he carried all of his money with him. And a lot of his friends said, you are going to get robbed walking on the streets with that. That's really kind of dumb. And uh, he just felt like that was the smart play because he didn't trust uh, anybody. So that's why he was called miserly, you know, for the lack of spending, the love of keeping his money. It wasn't as much love of money. It was just, he didn't want to lose his money. And then everybody knew that he carried his money uh, with him.
0: And including Archie Newton, as you write in your book, he seemed very interested in that aspect of Sam McMillan, very curious about the money Sam carried with him.
2: Yeah, that's correct. He, uh, Archie Newton clearly would have known about it. They lived about a mile apart, roughly, uh, several tracts of land apart, um, if you picture Archie as a young Englishman, probably dashing looking, he had a curled mustache, account say. Uh, Kate and his wife, would have been a very handsome young lady. Uh, she was the same age as Archie in their 21-ish, 22. You know, they would have cut a fine figure in this this kind of hard frontier, working the grows all day and, and s- sweat uh, through your shirt all day working. They didn't have that look. Sam, would have had that that look and with the added piece of being you know again wealthy-ish and having that big bulge of money uh, in his shirt. Archie knew about that he asked friends about it he even thought it was dumb for Sam to be carrying that and commented to a couple of people and these people testified at the trial that Archie had said at some point along the way why Sam carry that money someone's gonna off him for that one of these days and when Archie became interested in expanding his orange grove and he heard that Sam McMillan may be interested in selling his orange grove. Um, that's when these two really intersected. They weren't really friends beforehand. Again, Sam kept to himself, but Archie who probably had a pretty big personality became interested in buying his grove. But perhaps as the, the accusation of murder came later, might have been more interested in the uh, big wad of cash that Sam carried with him.
0: Sam was very interested in picking up and leaving. You suggest in your book that the hot weather may have played a part. He might have missed Ohio, but he had had enough of Florida and wanted to sell. Archie wanted to buy, but there was some question as to whether Archie actually had the cash to purchase Sam's land. And Sam was suspicious about this at first, right?
2: He was. Um, Sam was, I think, tired of a hard life here. It's hard work. And for those listeners from Florida or lived in Florida, it's hot. And this was a time before electricity. So no AC, uh, no fans, uh, very difficult. And it was as hot as it is uh, today in in the 1880s. Sam uh, had had made a decision to move back to Ohio. One of his laborers who testified at the trial suggested that it was um, a woman in Ohio that he wanted to move back for. Uh, Sam had suggested that he got letters from a lady up north and had made a decision to sell his holdings uh, in Florida and move back. So kind of the town knew that the wealthy miser, Sam McMillan, was interested in selling his very profitable orange grove. And accounts say that he was asking the ungodly sum of $18,000 for his land uh, just outside of Sanford. And in today's dollars, that'd be around, I think, three hundred fifty to $400,000. So, you know, quite a big chunk of money. Archie Newton cast his eye on that and one of the you know probably oldest motives for murder is born in that he is either coveting this land or the the cash that he knows Sam carries around and we have to understand Archie from a very wealthy family his great uncle is a knight of the realm basically sir william mckinnon uh, however given the legal troubles given the seriousness of the charge that um, Polly, his wife's sister, had made against him in London, the family had decided not to just simply give Archie a lot of money or give him all he wanted. He was actually on a very strict allowance, and the allowance was uh, not real significant. would have equaled maybe $1,500 a month-ish uh, or a little less, and a lot of people commented that Archie lived literally month to month and was always buying things on credit and then paying it when he got his allowance the next month. He so was always like a 30 days behind. So when he popped up as someone interested in buying Sam's uh, rather expensive uh, parcel of land, a few eyebrows went up because they know Archie was kind of from the rich upper societal strata of London life. They knew this. They knew that his house had been built for him, and the horse and the barn and all the stuff with it had been bought for him. But they also knew he didn't have any money in his pockets. He didn't have a stash of money from his uncle. Uh, they knew that. They knew he got an allowance and lived month to month because all the shopkeepers and everybody talked, and they knew that that's how this young man and his wife had lived. So how Archie thought he could spend, you know, three hundred and sixty thousand dollars cash to buy Sam's Orange Grove uh, certainly a mystery and uh, w- would lead clearly to uh, questions of motive and how he thought this would happen, or if he really even wanted the land, if that was just a cover to lure Sam uh, in somehow to steal his, his cash.
0: So at what point in the story does Sam McMillan disappear?
2: So, on September 30th, 1882, Sam tells uh, one of his close friends and neighbors, um, J.O. Tabor, who lived on the other side of Twin Lake from Sam and knew him very well, that he was going to go over to um, Kate and Archie's house that evening and maybe finalize a deal to buy his orange grove. And Tabor encouraged Sam to go because people suspected maybe he does have a stash of cash in the house or uh, in Sam's words, perhaps he has some gold that he brought with him from London that he's been hiding and he's going to give that to Sam to um, buy the land. And Sam would have been very happy with that. So there was some speculation that Archie may have had the cash, but I think that most people, We're pretty sure that he did not. But Sam was hopeful, maybe a little naive, maybe just seeing the dollar signs, and accepted an invite from Kate and Archie to go for late afternoon tea on September 30th, 1882. And uh, a witness saw him, uh, actually saw um, he and Archie walking down the main street between their homes just before dusk actually saw Kate Newton ride by in um, a small buggy the opposite direction to go apparently to kind of the general store um, about a mile away. The two men walked on. They disappeared. Everybody assumed that Sam went over. Kate Newton is seen about an hour later riding back towards her house. So it looks like this meeting went forward. And according to Kate and Archie, uh, Sam did come over. They talked about buying the land Uh, when Archie said he wasn't sure about his finances, Sam said, uh, could be issues. Um, he also said that he had to redo the deed to his land. There was some incorrect measurements and a deal was not finalized. Kate and Archie said Sam left at about 9 p.m. and walked home. Unfortunately, uh, no one ever saw Sam again. He didn't make it home. Uh, the day laborer came the next day, thought it odd that Sam was not home and within you know a couple of days the town knew that um, sam had disappeared and perhaps had been the victim of foul play
0: yeah and, and obviously the entire town's concerned and there are some who suspect that archie newton had something to do with it he was the last one to see him but they are willing to give him the benefit of the doubt at least at the beginning And he joins them in the search party, too, right?
2: That's right. They gave him the benefit of the doubt initially. Most of them did. A few who I think did not like Archie or Kate were suspicious immediately. Uh, A couple of Sam's closer friends kind of cast blame or a lot of suspicion very early on. And that was compounded by Archie's strange behavior on October 1st, which was the day after he supposedly met with Sam about buying the land, no deal was made, and Sam left the house. Archie was seen by several people, you know, riding his horse to a couple of different people's homes that morning. One person he encountered, Ziri Adams, he, you know, had some small talk, and he, uh, Archie asked um, Adams if he could borrow a very sharp razor And Adams thought that was odd and is like, why do you need a razor? And Archie said, well, we have company coming and I want to make sure that I'm shaved extra good. And it's not clear. It doesn't look like Adams gave him the razor. The prosecution would later cast this as Archie was searching for a sharp implement to to harm to Sam's lifeless body, which they suggested was in the Newton home at the time. Archie rides on, he buys some wine from uh, another neighbor and says that he's having, he had trouble sleeping and alternately says that Kate was having trouble sleeping and was very troubled by by things. Uh, Goes to another friend's house, talks about a, a pistol that he had borrowed. From uh, his friend, and tells the what seems to be unbelievable story to a small group of men who knew Archie. That I borrowed your pistol. It's great. I bought. I borrowed it for protection. Kind of using that term broadly. But funny thing, guys, last night I actually had to fire off a round at an alligator uh, that came up from from the lake right behind his house, and. The men seemed very surprised at that, that Archie would fire the gun and that an alligator would be the the cause of that. So a couple of odd things from Archie Newton the morning of October 1st, 1882. Uh, Then as the next two or three days unfold, he and Kate are seen in town with a large wad of cash. And I'm not making that up. It seems so obvious. But that's what he was seen with paying off some accounts that were in arrears, buying a bunch of clothing, buying a bunch of jewelry, um, going to the general store. We had an account, paying that off, paying off one of his laborers in cash that again, this young 21, 22 year old never had ever in his two years or so in Sanford, Florida. So some very odd things uh, from young Archie and Kate Uh, in the days after Sam disappeared, led to a lot of suspicion building um,
1: against him. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realized that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now and can you guess the twist? The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious
2: years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook. Available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl
0: received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian Colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Raw lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened, in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. So who finds Sam's body?
2: So the search party is, is, is uh, formed about a week and a half after he disappeared. Uh, interestingly, in that time frame, Archie kept saying that it, Sam probably just traveled to his other property. Sam McMillan owned a plot of land in the next county over. And Archie kept telling everybody that Sam must have gone to there and he's staying there, which would have been unusual because Sam never did that in all his time in uh, this area and uh, didn't really have the uh, you know, a house or any other kind of abode at this other location. So that story was a little odd. Seems like a cover story in hindsight to throw people off. But the town uh, becomes kind of uh, frantic to find him and or- organizes a search party and on October uh, 17th. So say I'm last on September 30th. So about a little less than three weeks later, several men in a boat find a, a bloated corpse floating in the lake or an adjoining lake near a very small island in the middle of this lake. The body had floated to the surface and they row over to it and turn it over. And it has no head, missing part of an arm, missing an entire leg and a whole bunch of other what looked like stab wounds and cuts to the body. More importantly, the body is tied down with a rope uh, attached to a, an iron pot, which not quite sure what that looked like. I think it was probably the size of like a paint can today, uh, but all iron and had a cover on it and it was full of nails. So clearly, and the rope was tied around the midsection of the body. Clearly, the body had been uh, dumped and uh, weighted down, so it sank into the lake. Uh, it looks like when uh, you know the bloat happened, it kind of came a little bit to the surface and drifted, so that it was got into shallow water and uh, was seen by the search party uh, in a rowboat. Uh, this lake uh, is in a lake called Lake Como crystal lake it's very hard to tell which one it was but these are both lakes that connect to each other that are the lakes that Archie Newton's house sits on he actually had a dock on uh, the lake so search party finds his body this body it's headless uh, they pull it onto the boat in its horrific condition as you can only imagine and they row back to the shore and they had originated the search at Archie's land uh, where his yard came down to the with a dock and a beach and they docked the boat. They pull the body out. They call for everybody searching the the land uh, and other boats on the water to come over. And the uh, person who is really designated as the coroner would have been kind of like a local justice of the peace or constable. his named Edgar Harrison. And he Uh, immediately calls for an inquest right there as this bloated body is sitting on the shore they just pulled out of the water so you can picture what this would have looked like and they go through the pockets someone says those shoes are Sam McMillan's shoes and someone says that vest I it's familiar and they don't really find anything in the pockets and most importantly that large wad of cash that Sam carried is is missing um, so they're pretty sure it's Sam McMillan's body that they found. But from a legal perspective, it's not 100 uh, percent. So they take custody of the body that the, the uh, coroner does. And Florida law at the time said that you had to have an inquest and then a cr- first a criminal inquest within a few days if you're going to charge somebody. So they um, only had a few days to try to find the head to. Uh, positively identify this body and proceed forward. They had that time and that time frame started because they took custody of Archie almost immediately. And it was for this reason A, there was already suspicion. B, he had flashed this big wad of cash for the past two weeks around town. He and Kate, they bought a lot of things that cost a lot of money. And C, and probably most fatally for Archie when they pull the body onto shore and they're going through the pockets and they look at this iron pot with the rope, one of the search party who is a laborer, is a Frenchman named Picard, in his heavy French accent says, hey, I recognize that rope, that's Archie's rope. And hey, I recognize that pot, that's Archie's pot. I was using that you know, a couple weeks ago to paint something. And Archie, who's standing there looking at the body, with all these men around him who are already probably looking sideways at him says, Oh my gosh, that is my pot. And that's crazy. That's my rope. And admits those, those things are his. So he's arrested immediately. The clock starts ticking on being able to criminally hold him and charge him. And uh, the criminal inquest literally has, I think day two on October 21st, and they're almost at the time limit for having to conclude that there's not enough evidence to hold Archie Newton. Another search party had been out scouring the countryside for the head and two men found the head uh, in the same lake um, several feet away. And in what must've been a very dramatic scene, um, literally open the doors in the back of the room while this criminal inquest is going on with the head in kind of a burlap sack. And if you can just picture these two guys who would have been a little bit wet from getting in the water, dirty and sweaty, walking in, you know, with the, holding up this thing like a talisman that we found the head. Here it is. And uh, must have been a very, very um, chaotic scene when they brought that in. And they pulled two barrels and a plank and they create a table and they call for the doctor and he examines the head right there uh, at the criminal inquest in front of everybody. And um, it's clearly Sam McMillan's head. Uh, they opine that it's from the body they found a few days before, and so there's definitely been a murder. Uh, and even more fascinating, if you read this book, the doctor, using no sense of procedure that we would use today, basically picks the head up, examines it, gives some you know kind of preliminaries. It's been in the water obviously. Turns around, and in the back of the of Sam's head. In the skull, there is a small entrance wound, and he tells the crowd that it must have been shot. And the prosecutor, uh, a guy named Thomas Wilson, who was presenting the criminal inquest on behalf of the state, asked the doctor, is the bullet still in the skull? And the doctor, and again, ask your listeners to just picture this guy, takes the head and shakes it and can hear something rattling around inside the skull. And he cuts the bottom of the, uh, the, the, the dura matter where he can kind of let everything come out and it splashes out probably like, you know, soup. And he shakes the skull again and out drops uh, a bullet onto the floor, which is strewn with sawdust. And they have to pull it out and hold it up. And, you know, that was the aha moment about what killed Sam McMillan.
0: So Archie Newton, as you've established, had connections with powerful people did these people come to his aid during this legal process
2: Uh, the answer to that is yes and no Uh, he certainly would have appealed to his very wealthy powerful British family Um, Sir William McKinnon would have heard about this I'm sure he probably would have put his head in his hands and you know thought he made a mistake by sending that young kid off anyways uh, I'm sure the family thought they were sending him to Florida where he would stay out of trouble. And within two years, he's accused of murdering somebody and beheading him. So part of his family, and this is my guess, uh, probably didn't want to help him. Uh, but, you know, he is family. Uh, they have a lot of connections and a lot of money. So they helped him by uh, uh, hiring and paying for the lawyer, his defense lawyer, who was a local well, who was a lawyer based in Sanford, and a guy named Elazer Foster. And Foster had come from Connecticut originally as well and knew the Sanford family and had come down here to help Sanford with the legal side of developing a new town. So he was a uh, well-connected lawyer himself, uh, probably expensive, and uh, Archie's family foot the bill for the lawyer. So he was ably represented and you know it's it's true. It was true in the 1880s, and unfortunately, partly true today, that sometimes the uh, the ability to afford a really good lawyer is um, you know the one of the most important things that criminal defendants face uh, today and back then. So he was uh, ably represented uh, with good counsel uh, who tried every tactic possible to either delay the trial, get it dismissed. You know, question the prosecutor on every front. Actually, on the very first day of trial, when the judge bangs the gavel in a crowded courtroom in Orlando in June, 1883, to start, his defense lawyer stands up and shocks everybody by saying, move to dismiss on the grounds that the jury sitting here has been improperly impaneled, and here's the proof, and delayed everything another couple of days or a week for the jury. So Definitely, he was ably represented and the family paid the bills. On the flip side of that, there were several requests to McKinnon and the people that ran his company, which, remember, owned Sanford, Florida at this time, to assist by... Writing letters, um, probably looking for affidavits from them about this young man's character. And there's no way he could kill somebody. You know, the, the character references to use or to be witnesses, even, uh, or to help maybe uh, explain how Archie could have gotten a large sum of money. Maybe he did have a large sum of money on October 2nd, 3rd, 4th uh, of 1882. And it's just happenstance because his family sent him money. Archie also had commented to people that his wife, who I spend a lot of time kind of recounting her background, she was actually very, very poor. Uh, So poor she had to borrow undergarments from a landlady and shoes. She didn't even have those things. Archie mentioned to people that, Uh, Kate's family, someone had died and left her a small inheritance inheritance, and they were expecting that any day now. And that's how they were going to buy Sam's orange grove. So some evidence comes out later that perhaps there was an explanation for this young couple who'd never had any money uh, all of a sudden walking around with a big wad of cash, but it doesn't appear that the family in, in Britain ever provided any support or assistance in that regard for this young man on trial for his life.
0: As an attorney yourself, you have a pretty unique perspective of the trial and very ably document its progress in your book. We, of course, don't have time to get into every detail today, but I'd love it if you could share what you consider maybe a personal highlight of Archie Newton's trial.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's almost um, hard to pick one because there are so many very dramatic today would be prohibited statements, actions, things done at the trial. Uh, And as a lawyer practicing in the year 2020, um, this case would have been probably thrown out before it started, quite frankly, but certainly would have been uh, mistrialed numerous times along the way for the conduct of the prosecutor, for the statements of witnesses, for the handling of the evidence. So if you're a fan of, kind of the courtroom back and forth. I put a lot of that in this story because we actually have the back and forth with question, answer, question, answer. I like reading that myself because it gives you a really good flavor of the facts in the people's own words, which again, I think makes this story compelling. Uh, Picking one is hard. I would probably go with maybe if I could just do two, one would be just the outrageous, histrionics and acting of the prosecutor whose name was Alexander St. Clair Abrams. And the, the the record is full of references that the court reporter wrote down of what he did, how he acted. He was very theatrical over the top. The second one I would, and that's kind of a general one, this, the, the one witness I would probably uh, look to the most for just kind of, you know, given a flavor would be the, the main, the constable in charge of Sanford, which would have been a guy named William Serene. Keystone cops, calling him a keystone cop with kind of the way he handled himself and bumbled through this would probably be an insult to the keystone cops. He mishandled the gun that was supposedly the murder weapon. Actually, when he got the gun, he testified later that because it was dirty and rusty, he cleaned it and he took a um, some kind of a, a a rod and shoved it down the barrel several times uh, to start cleaning it. And he took, there was a bullet in the chamber, and he shoved that through to see if he could create the, you know, the check the rifling markings on it. So by doing all that, he completely ruined what would probably be called the murder weapon. Interestingly, that weapon was identified by Archie's friend, as the gun that he loaned to Archie a month or two before this all happened and that Archie returned to him with one bullet missing after Sam disappeared. So that piece of evidence was crucial to the whole case. And remember a man's life is at stake here. This is a time when they convicted people. The appeals process was very quick and you, they hung them. So Archie, even though he was from a wealthy family, had a great lawyer, had a good defense, um, was on trial for his life. So to mishandle the evidence by the constable who's all this is entrusted to, um, is, is egregious, you know, doubly egregious. Actually, William Serene at trial, when he's talking about the weapon and after he goes through all the mishaps he had with it, said in, in a kind of a question and answer with the prosecutor says, when I got the gun, I was looking at it and, um, it went off. And the prosecutor's, what do you mean it went off? Oh, it accidentally, I accidentally fired it off and the prosecutor kind of out. And again, I'm paraphrasing, but asked, okay, what, what happened with the, what happened there? And so the constable explains that he accidentally shot the gun off and the bullet went into his windowsill. And the prosecutor says, well, do you have the windowsill with you? And serene, and you can, you can picture this crowded courtroom with, people watching, sweating in the heat of Florida in June. Um, Some diary accounts say it was 95 degrees through the length of the trial. Says, yep, got it right here. And he literally holds up the actual windowsill he removed from his house. And the prosecutor says, well, is the bullet still in it? Yes, it is. And he says, well, can you remove it for us, please? And the constable, sitting in the witness stand, takes a knife out of his pocket and digs the bullet out of this window sill and it falls down onto the floor and the court reporter notes that it was lost in the sawdust on the floor and then found. So that's just one example of the, you know, dramatics, probably not even the right word of the unusual and almost bizarre things that happened at trial. And there are, I mean, there were more than 60 witnesses here. This trial went about six weeks. So, a lot of fascinating if you again, if you like trial uh trial drama and back and forth there was a lot of it in this case
0: and he was found guilty
2: he was you know not to ruin the story for everybody but um, uh, his defense uh, lawyer foster decided actually not to put on any evidence no witnesses archie did not testify because even then you could not testify against yourself and Kate couldn't be forced under Florida law to testify against her husband. So the defense basically rested. Um, It probably signaled because Foster was a good lawyer and because his bills were being paid at probably the rate he wanted, uh, it probably signaled more of a confidence in the prosecution failing to prove the case rather than an incompetent defense lawyer or someone just hadn't prepared and just said, whatever, we're not going to do anything. So uh, he didn't present any witnesses and the 12 men on the jury uh, found Archie um, guilty and the judge in a very dramatic, uh, I think I actually have a picture of it in the book from the record, his pronouncement of guilt and uh, or affirmation of guilt and then pronouncement that he would hang uh, as soon as possible.
0: So, there is an appeal and a second trial, and we don't have to give the ending away on that one.
2: (laughs) Right, Uh, right.
0: Uh, But there is a unique aspect to this case that still lingers today, and that has to do with ghosts. Specifically, the ghost of the headless miser, Sam McMillan. How did his death turn into a ghost story that has lasted over the decades And would you share some of the more interesting ghost stories uh, written about, talked about today?
2: Yeah, it was a story that, um, you know, kind of grew up around this tale that Sam's headless body uh, was restless and was always searching for the uh, decapitated head. And uh, the ghost story arose from the lake where his body was found, which is probably Crystal Lake. Again, it wasn't real clear the exact one, but say it's Crystal Lake, uh, people would report that they would see uh, uh, an apparition rise from the water and float along the surface of the water um, with its arms out, headless, uh, searching for its head. And, you know, even in the 18 late 1880s and 1890s uh you know ghost hunters uh kind of came to the shores of crystal lake to to see if they could see the ghost Uh, people in town talked about it as if it was you know a thing that was happening and um interestingly a story appeared in a new york kind of journal of stories that was regularly published uh in the north and um It told this whole tale of a miserly fellow who had been murdered heinously and his body uh, had been had been severed and the body was floating above uh, the water. And people saw this and uh, the ghost would never rest until the head was found. The story was published in New York. Uh, It did not identify Sam McMillan and it did not identify Sanford, Florida. It did identify Florida. And talked about um, kind of a um, topographically and you know environmentally clearly was this area the author of that ghost story that was published in New York early 1890s I believe was unknown it was anonymous and so reading that story I'm try- you know trying to fill in who would have had all this knowledge and who would have perhaps written it and Uh, My personal opinion after researching and, and, you know, getting to know all these characters really well is that it was written by the prosecutor, uh, Alex St. Clair Abrams. And I say that because he was a very bombastic uh, sort. He was actually from New Orleans originally and was known as the Volcanic Creole uh, for his demeanor and his abrasiveness and his trial comportment uh, when he talked And just to give you an idea of what Abrams was all about, he told everybody he had been a major in the Confederate Army in the Civil War. All the records that we found um, would suggest he was never anything more than a private and that he um, was at the siege of Vicksburg, but mustered out because of quote sickness, uh, survived the siege, moved to Atlanta, had the misfortune of being there when Sherman siege Atlanta and survived that. After the war though, for surprisingly he ends up in New York City uh writing uh for uh the New York Herald in the 1870s. And actually kept rooms at the Astor House in downtown New York and uh was the one entrusted to get encrypted cables from Europe recounting the um the Aust- uh, the Prussian Franco-Prussian war that was going on in the 1870s. So he became kind of a player in New York newspaper and story writing circles left that job later and ended up in Sanford Florida as a lawyer you know a little time later Uh, so he certainly had the connections to be able to write a story and get it published like this and the other giveaway I think in the story is a reference to the town of Tavares which is about 30 miles west of Sanford in the middle of, of Florida Tavares is a town that Abrams actually founded himself and invested in and built up. And then he lobbied the state uh, legislature for a number of years to make this little town in the middle of nowhere, the capital of Florida probably indicating the level of his arrogance and perhaps lack of self-awareness. Um, that town is mentioned in this ghost story. So I tell you all that because I think this ghost story was probably written by him perhaps as a, um, You know, a way to call attention to to Tavares, his town, or this great victory he initially got with the conviction uh, of Archie Newton, the young Englishman.
0: Interesting. So the area he was murdered in back in 1882, does it resemble in any way now what it did?
2: Yeah, unfortunately, no. Um, None of the houses uh, survive. Uh, and I should mention on the ghost story, just real quick, that that was told up until, looks like the 1950s uh, in this area. It's kind of faded since then. But in the 1950s, there are some memoirs of folks, and they knew the story of the Headless Miser and Sam McMillan. So it certainly was a tale that persisted for a, a long time in the area of Sanford and the outlying. Towns. Um, but none of the houses exist anymore. You know, they were all wood structures. So uh, the March of Time uh, is not kind to old wood houses, and neither is the Florida heat and termites. So Sam McMillan's property is partly still um, trees, a couple old orange trees you can kind of see, but it's a couple larger oaks and some palms have taken over. Uh, a little bit of a hill still remains. Uh, Remember I told you that he was in a place called Twin Lakes, and it was actually two very small lakes connected to each other. He was kind of in the southern branch of those two lakes. That southern lake is gone, dried up, and then has been built over. But interestingly, right where um, his property was, uh, it's on a a road um, called H.E. Thomas Parkway or Route 46A, if you want to look on a map and see it, um, the road actually splits right where Sam's property was. And that's because at the time his property was kind of in the middle of a, of a road that came through and the road actually stopped at his property, took a hard left turn and went around his boundary and then continued on. So that road today still splits off kind of as it used to, and also because it used to be a little bit of a lake there. So if you stand right where that road kind of splits and kind of goes, you know, one direction is on one side and the other direction of the road is on the other, in the middle of that is a 7-Eleven. And if you stand in the 7-Eleven parking lot and you face east and then south, right across the street, the the land slopes up. Uh, Again, flat geography in Florida, little hills are actually very noticeable. Uh, That's Sam's Orange Grove right there and would have been where this man lived and worked and, you know, probably died uh, in, uh, you know, 130 some years ago. So his house is not there. It was surviving until the late uh, 1960s. Some folks knew it as McMillan's house and then it was torn down. So there's a 7-Eleven probably where Sam would have uh, spent a lot of time picking and packing his oranges. Archie's house is long gone. Uh, That whole area where he was is a um, uh, housing development in the um, most modern sense of that word. Uh, It's all tract housing. Uh, Crystal Lake, where he lived, has receded really far from where it would have been at the time of uh, Archie and Kate building their house and enjoying the fine view out of the back window of the lake. Um, But it's still there, Uh, it's just a little farther away from where it would have been at the time. So sadly, their houses are long gone. Downtown Sanford is very much as it would have appeared to these two men in the 1880s. Uh, there was a fire in Sanford in 1887 that burned a lot of the wood structures, which are all rebuilt pretty much of brick, as a lot of towns go through in our history. Um, but the layout of the town, the roads, the names, some of the older buildings that have survived the fire, um, they would they'd recognize them today.
0: Well, that's great. Uh, so so tell us about your book. Where can we get it? Is there somewhere listeners can find out a little bit more about you?
2: Sure. Um, it's on, um, you know, you can Google Murder on the Florida Frontier or my name, Andrew Fink, and, and find it in a lot of places. It's, for, you know, it's published by Arcadia, so it's on their website, but it's also on Amazon and several other outlets, I believe, like Target and Walmart.com. Um, uh, you can find it on there. There's a lot of places that sell it. Uh, also, if you like Audible, uh, I had an Audible version done uh, in June, late 2019. So it's on iTunes uh, and audible.com, uh, the Amazon platform. Uh, so it's downloadable, and it's the guy who did it did a wonderful job of narrating. So I'd recommend that if you like Audible books as, as well. But, yeah, you can find it anywhere. It's only sold in bookstores in in Florida. So if you're listening in uh, around the Orlando area, it'll be at Books a Million or um, Barnes and Noble, those kind of places.
0: So I have a final question to you: <laughs> Are you related to the legendary King of the Keelboaters, the boatman who prowled the Ohio and the Mississippi rivers uh, at the at the turn of the 19th century, uh, Mike Fink?
2: Well, you know it's a great question, and you would think that my family would be able to have a great answer for you, and no one really knows. I suspect that we are, and we are uh, my dad's side uh, is from you know West Virginia and Virginia, where the Mike Fink story kind of originates in the Ohio River right there. So it's most probable, and it's also uh, Eric, probably a subject of uh, another book I'd like to do, I think.
0: Yes, I'd love to read it. Well, we've come to the end. Thanks again so much for your time today.
2: You're so welcome, and thank you so much for having me. I I really appreciate it.
0: Again, I have been speaking to Andrew Fink. His book is called Murder on the Florida Frontier, The True Story Behind Sanford's Headless Miser Legend. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. Broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world, I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.